Remember, remember the faith of November. Yes, please do. Please listen to that man. Thank you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hey. Here I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me. From Bradblog.com, your mileage may vary, but... (laughs) Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. We've got some good-ish news and some, well, irritating news coming up uh, in a bit from our corrupt, stolen, and packed U.S. Supreme Court, uh, making further mockery, I think, of the notion of equal justice under the law. And... Desi Doyen will be here with Yay. our latest Green News report. Hi, Des. How are Hi, you? Hi, I'm okay. I'm glad to hear that at least it's not horrible news out of the Supreme no, Court. No, it is not horrible for a change. But that's a low bar. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, we got another hour here. Things <laughs> can change pretty quickly. Uh, nonetheless, in your Green News report, I'm happy to say we actually have some bona fide good news yes, for we a change. Do. I think stay tuned for the good news, at least in part. (laughs) We'll see. But hey, uh, speaking of equal justice under the law and the mockery thereof uh, for the last several days, weeks uh, and months, we have been offering a bunch of reasons why every American must vote between now and November 8th. In what I have described as the most critical midterm elections since the Civil War. Now, if that sounds like an overstatement to you, well, A, I think you haven't been paying very close attention because American democracy itself absolutely is on the ballot this year in advance of 2024. This may, in fact, be the last free-ish Democratic election, small-D Democratic election in these United States. But B... Voters in five states this year are actually voting to end slavery. Seriously, 
Last week, we discussed a bunch of the propositions that are on the ballot out here in California, from further legalizing gambling to increasing taxes on millionaires to help pay for the transition to clean energy in California, to an attempt to ban flavored vaping liquid, even though doing so will likely help kill thousands of California residents who won't otherwise be able to quit smoking. But... In five states this year, from the so-called red states of Alabama, Louisiana, and Tennessee to the theoretically liberal bastions of Oregon and Vermont, voters will be voting to, yes, end slavery or at least indentured involuntary servitude. And to be frank, I'm not all that certain that I can tell the difference. When slavery was outlawed in the U.S. in 1865, the 13th Amendment included one exception, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's how the amendment reads. So the uh, 13th Amendment ended slavery except when used as punishment for a crime. In that case, slavery and involuntary servitude was apparently no problem. Back in 2020, Senators, uh, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Congressman William Lacey Clay of Missouri introduced a joint resolution in the U.S. House and Senate that would remove the 13th Amendment's so-called punishment clause, the language that accepted convicted prisoners from the ban on slavery and involuntary servitude. Said Congressman Clay at the time in a statement, quote, our abolition amendment seeks to finish the job that President Lincoln started by ending the punishment clause in the 13th Amendment to eliminate the dehumanizing and discriminatory forced labor of prisoners for profit that has been used to drive the over incarceration of African-Americans since the end of the Civil War. Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Ed uh, Markey of Massachusetts, among others, co-sponsored the amendment at the time, which earned the support of social justice organizations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Color of Change. Merkley and Clay, in their release at the time, called the punishment clause in the 13th Amendment indisputably racist in origin and in impact. Indeed, Since the South relied on slave labor for its economy in the 19th century, that line in the amendment was used as a loophole to continue the forced labor of black Americans who were imprisoned, according to the nonprofit Equal Justice Initiative, which works to end mass incarceration. It will come as no surprise then that the punishment clause led to higher rates of arrests, among black Americans throughout the Jim Crow era through the war on drugs in the 1980s and beyond. The bill's co-sponsors said at the time, by effectively creating a, quote, financial incentive for mass incarceration. The measure in Congress has been sort of stuck there as of 2020. Changing a U.S. constitutional amendment is a heavy lift, no matter how obviously correct it may seem to many of us at this time. Updating the 13th Amendment would require two-thirds of both chambers of Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures to agree. A daunting task in a nation right now that can't seem to agree on much of anything, apparently even abolishing slavery, incredibly enough. 
The constitutional penalty, slavery as a punishment for crime, has incredibly remained on the books more than 150 years later in more than a dozen states. But next Tuesday, voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Vermont, Oregon, and Tennessee will be given the opportunity to exercise the punishment from their state's constitutions once and for all. The proposed amendments to those state constitutions would either explicitly rule out slavery and indentured servitude as potential punishments or remove the terms from state law altogether. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? State-level advocates hope their efforts can gin up enough momentum to prompt a change at the federal level. If their populaces vote for this at the state level, said Bianca Tylek, the executive director of Worth Rises, a nonprofit that is campaigning to remove the clause from the 13th Amendment, then we have to believe that their congressional representatives will also have to support it as a federal measure. The hope, says Theta Murphy from the No Exceptions Prison Collective, according to CNN, is that a critical mass of states will remove the exceptions in their state constitutions and provide a strong foundation for a movement to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And while I find it somewhat remarkable that we're even discussing something like this, I am delighted nonetheless to be joined today by Theta Murphy, the co-director of the No Exceptions Prison Collective, a nonprofit grassroots initiative based in Nashville, Tennessee, dedicated to ending mass incarceration and focused on sentencing reform, prison conditions, abolition of all private prisons, not to mention who to thunk it, the abolition of slavery, an involuntary servitude in the year 2022. Oh, Theta Murphy, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And I, you summed it up so perfectly. Well, I'll tell you, I got a lot of questions here, nonetheless, Theta. Uh, <laughs> some of the some of the state constitutions proposing these ballot measures this year already disallow slavery, but they say nothing about indentured or involuntary servitude, uh, or they, you know, just simply allow it uh, as Alabama's current constitution would uh unless a measure to rewrite pretty much the entire constitution is uh adopted that would remove the uh punishment of crime using involuntary servitude for that but i'm having trouble what's the difference between the two between slavery and involuntary uh servitude i i, I well there really is there really is no difference between them especially now that we don't have, like, the legal institution of slavery anymore, mm -hmm. there really is no difference between slavery and involuntary servitude. <laughs> <laughs> so so when the, when the uh, Alabama Constitution, for, for example, right now says no form of slavery shall exist in this state, and then it goes on to say uh, there shall not be involuntary servitude other than for punishment of a crime, that's the part they'll be taking out. Uh, at this point, I, I don't know how you can have uh, no slavery, but yes, involuntary servitude. Right, because, you know, according to to us, mm -hmm. any type of forced labor mm -hmm. is slavery, and, and period. Yeah. Uh, and should not exist in the United States in 2022. Now, I'll get to the so-called liberal states like Oregon and Vermont in a second. But in your own home state, uh, Theta, of Tennessee this year, the measure on the uh, on the ballot asks that slavery and indentured servitude shall be 
uh, quote, forever prohibited while including nothing in this section shall prohibit an inmate from working when the inmate has been duly convicted of a crime. Is that sufficient to end the so-called slavery exception in the great state of Tennessee? It is. Um, in Tennessee, people are not uh, sentenced to hard labor, mm-hmm. as in uh, as in Louisiana and Alabama they can be. But so just yeah. moving that exception mm-hmm. is enough, and that sentence takes out the element of coercion. They cannot be forced to work. Well, that's what I was going to say. So even if it's not hard labor, but let's say easy labor, let's say answering telephones for an airline, as you know, is sometimes the case uh, mm-hmm. in, in many prisons around the country, uh, mm-hmm. would, would that be ended? Uh, and, and by the way, I believe the average for that type of work is about $1 an hour around the country. So it would end it, at least in Tennessee, as far as forcing uh, uh, prisoners to have to do that? Right, and... Um that was language that the, the Tennessee Department of Corrections asked us to put in because mm-hmm. in Tennessee, work programs um, are not coercive; they're voluntary. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they wanted to make to make sure that that passing this would would not prevent them from having work programs. And so that was why they asked us to put that additional sentence in there, so they could continue to have work programs, which, on their face. Are voluntary. Now, uh, interesting you say on their face. Uh, any idea why the measure is suddenly on the ballot in Tennessee this year versus, for example, in 2020, uh, or I don't know, for any of the more than 150 years since the 13th Amendment was adopted to theoretically free the slaves? Well, it is, it is actually a process that for us started in 20, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, my co-director at No Exceptions had been working as a chaplain inside uh, one of the maximum security prisons here in Tennessee Mm. and and making relationships with um, the folks on the inside and getting into conversation with them about their conditions and their life. Well, they said to her, you know, nothing that you do will change because we are considered slaves. Mm. And she was an attorney. She said, no, that can't be. Uh, I, I, You know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. And then she went back and actually read it mm. and said, oh, there's a huge exception there. Mm. And so legally, they are second-class citizens. Mm. And so that's how the initiative in Tennessee got started. It was something that started that was started behind the prison walls. Mm. Something that um, insiders themselves wanted and have been behind from the beginning. So, the state process in mm-hmm. Tennessee is that it has to go before uh, any constitutional amendment has to pass the state legislature mm-hmm. twice, mm. two, two consecutive sessions. Okay. So we started that process in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and it passed the two sessions and pretty much unanimously. We only had a handful of no votes at the end. I mean, literally five at the end. And, um, and what were their reasons, by did, the way? What were their reasons for voting against this one, Dita? Uh, well, uh, one of them I didn't quite understand. Uh-huh. The, the reasoning was, well, that will, will we have to now be forced to give people jobs? Okay. Um, will they be able to sue us because we don't have enough jobs to give them? 
And I don't know where that came from, <laughs> where that reasoning comes from. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but that was that was one. Okay. And then the other one was, this is hard to understand. We don't understand what's going on here. Literally, the the ballot measure is two sentences. Right. But this is too difficult for and complicated for us to understand. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Now, but by the way, other than other than hoping to, you know, goose the possibility of rewriting the federal Thirteenth Amendment, you say that you know coercive labor in Tennessee is already not allowed. So, will this measure in your state, if it's successfully adopted, will it have any actual material change in Tennessee? No, no. But it's still not symbolic, mm-hmm. and the and the reason is. Because now you will have, I mean, right now people people are second-class citizens. Right. People are considered subhuman. People are considered property. Mm-hmm. So changing that and having it so that, that people are no longer considered property mm-hmm. is a huge thing. Yeah. And there is no provision, as it is written now, that says people reta- regain their full citizenship after serving time. Mm. There's nothing in there that says that. So people who who are convicted of a crime become permanent second class citizens according to the letter of the law, and that can't that can't be allowed. Now, many of the concerns, uh, Theta Murphy, that I've been reading up on uh, on this is that you know removing the indentured or involuntary servitude exception might somehow affect the ability for states to use. Prison labor, which is a $500 million a year industry, as I understand it, in the U.S. for ridiculously low wages uh, that are somehow allowed to avoid both state and federal minimum wage requirements, as far as I can tell. Oregon's ballot measure on this would remove, quote, all language creating an exception and makes the prohibition against slavery and involuntary servitude unequivocal. But... Democratic State Rep Barbara Smith Warner said that while uh, she would welcome a discussion about the ending of the prison labor movement entirely, the intent of this measure was to not eliminate prison industries. And where such industries exist, uh, are they are they actually voluntary? And I, you know, mentioned that they must be a dollar an hour. Yeah. So, so the yeah. payment that they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they work for Tricor, which is the the corporation in Tennessee, mm-hmm. is actually more than they would than they would get just having a regular job. Really, uh, a regular job in the prison. They're getting more money. Okay, a regular so job they're, in they're, the they're, in the prison, not necessarily okay. a regular right. job. Okay, okay, right, right, right. right. Uh-huh. So those are the high paying jobs. So that's their incentive to want those jobs. And and um, our experience with people in, inside is that they definitely do want to work. Mm-hmm. They want to work. They want the opportunity to be able to contribute uh, to their family. And plus, there are so many other fines and fees, such as for phones, fines and fees when they when they're getting mail, fines mm-hmm. and fees for anything that they want to get out of commissary. And mo- and these days, most anything that they need, they have to get it out of commissary. So they don't want to be a financial burden to their family in doing that. So they want to work, right? Well, yeah, and and I understand that, but shouldn't they not only you know 
absolutely be voluntary whether they want to work or not. But uh, mm. shouldn't these jobs be required to meet, you know, state or federal minimum wage requirements? I mean, they are still doing work. They're still doing work for companies. I, I, I don't know. It seems to me they, they ought to pay them the minimum wage for doing the same work that everyone else does. Well, I mean, that is something that, that we, a discussion that, that can happen. Mm -hmm. It will not happen before this passes. We've got to get it passed mm -hmm. first before anything else, before we can even think about what the ramifications would be. I got gotcha. you. And, you know, I can only hope I want to run through these states. We've, we've got a lot of listeners in Oregon, and I can only mm -hmm. hope that they get this one right. I will be shocked if they don't on Tuesday. But then there's Vermont. Well, I would hope yeah. that 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 because that, uh, I know they have had some pushback from the Sheriff's Association in Oregon. Mm. And I'm hoping that, you know, it won't be stymied because people are saying that it's that freedom is too expensive. Um, that's what happened in, in, in California, unfortunately. Um, what would it, co what would it I'm cost? I'm hoping that won't happen. What would it cost in a state like Oregon when they say it's too expensive? Well, I don't know, but in Tennessee, we're actually, <laughs> they would actually be, be no economic ramifications. Uh-huh. You know, because like, like we said, people would still continue to, continue to be able to work. Mm-hmm. So... And yet you say that California has turned down this amendment? Right, because they, they were, we thought that they were going to be on the ballot with us. Ah. But, uh, uh -huh, but at the last minute, as it was going through committee, the fiscal note came out at the very last minute with not enough time for them to even, even address it. Mm -hmm. And so um, the fiscal note had a high price tag. Mm. And so it ended up not making it out of committee. Well, now I'm embarrassed for our state. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But at least this was not. So it didn't even make it onto the ballot, basically, at this point, right? No. We, so we can no. we can still keep fighting for that, at least. Let me get to Vermont here before I, I uh, run out of time, which was, by the way, the first U.S. colony to uh, uh, to uh, abolish slavery outright, uh, but they still have the exception clause, the punishment clause, and that would be changed by this measure that is on the ballot on Tuesday to both both prohibit slavery and indentured servitude. But here it was interesting because when the proposition was announced over the summer, the Republican governor there, Phil Scott, came out in support of it, but Democratic State Senator Dick McCormick described it as uh, merely symbolic. He said it was an underwhelming response to legitimate demands of black people before going on to argue that the constitutional clause was, quote, rendered moot by the national outlawing of slavery with the 13th Amendment. But that said, uh, Theda, given what we saw happen when our corrupted U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, we saw, yeah. you know, hundred-year-old laws banning abortion without exception suddenly were immediately reinstituted. Isn't uh, Senator McCormick being a bit naive there in saying, well, it's already banned at the federal level, we don't have to worry about it? Yeah, um, yeah, and we've kind of heard some of that. Mm-hmm here in Tennessee, but the fact of the matter is that 13th Amendment also is, has that ex exception within it. Right. So it's not banned. It's not banned at the at the federal level. Mm -hmm. This is part of the process of, of how things get changed at the federal level. Mm -hmm. You have, A lot of times you have states be, begin to lead the way by changing their constitution. Mm -hmm. 
And that is, you know, as I said before, that is what we are hoping will be the case, that the states are going to lead the way and provide that, that critical mass well, to, to move the national um, Constitution amendment. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm what I'm wondering. And uh, to be fair to uh, poor Senator McCormick in in Vermont, there he he does believe that quote ending prison labor is a reasonable policy proposal, and we should get started on it. He says, um, yeah, okay. but he argues that the Vermont <laughs> amendment does not do that, nor does it fix the Thirteenth uh, Amendment. So I'm wondering how much uh, of an effect do we have, like historical precedent, where we uh, you know, how much of an effect will these measures uh, in these five states, if they pass, I guess, you know, will they actually have on getting us to the more important goal, I think, of amending the 13th Amendment itself to the U.S. Constitution? Well, I mean, three states have passed it. Colorado, Nebraska, and Utah. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, all very red Republican states. Mm. And they are beginning to have these discussions about well, what does it what does it mean to now have people that cannot be treated like property that the state no longer owns, and what that means for for every aspect mm-hmm. of a person who is who is incarcerated? Can you deny them health care? What kind of food do you feed them? Mm-hmm. Do you have to charge them um, for their clothes? Those those are the kinds of questions that begin to be answered or to be asked mm-hmm. because people are no longer property. Mm-hmm. The, uh, Theta, there uh, are five uh, states have it on the ballot this year. There was, uh, I think, two adopted uh, the, you know, got rid of the exception in 2020. I think another one did in 2018. Uh, that's eight states. Uh, how many other states are are you concerned about is does uh, we know California is is one uh, beyond mm-hmm. that how many other states are we looking at where, you know that still have this exception in their in their state constitution? Well, um, Ohio I know has has been trying to do this for the longest and they and they can't mm. they haven't been able to get much traction out of their state legislature. Uh, uh, same thing in New Jersey, mm. Texas is going to be on the ballot next year. But the thing about Texas that makes Texas Texas unique is that they don't have the exception language in their Constitution. What they are going to be doing is just affirmatively adding the language that affirmatively states uh-huh. that in, uh, that slavery and involuntary servitude is prohibited. Oh, good. Thank God. I thought you were going to say Texas doesn't have it in there, but they're going to add it next, <laughs> next no. time. Okay, good. No. Uh, and uh, and that, provides, uh, that provides protection against the 13th. In Texas. Gotcha. All right. Uh, before I go here, uh, Theta, I suspect there is not much polling. Uh, maybe there is, but I haven't seen it. Uh, is, is there polling on, on these questions? I know the media tend to be more interested in, you know, polling the horse races of actual candidates versus propositions. Yeah. But do you have any sense uh, if We've these will pass? We've had some internal polling. Yeah. We've had some internal pol- polling here in, um, in Tennessee mm-hmm. that shows that um, Republicans and Democrats are united against this and you know it's surprising to us in this period of division mm-hmm. and in this deep red state nobody is for slavery nobody <laughs> will nobody at least will come out and say they're for it. right so so our polling says that this amendment will pass it will pass because 
uh, more than half of the of the, the voters that, that were asked are are going to vote for it because well, they don't support slavery. Well, let's hope if nothing else in this country at this time, we can all come together around the idea that we're against slavery. <laughs> Theta Murphy is the co-director at No Exceptions Prison Collective. You can find their work at noexceptionsprisoncollective.org. Uh, also, uh, on, on Twitter, I believe, uh, End the Exception is the, uh, is the Twitter handle for this effort, and also abolishslavery.us. Theta Murphy is the co-director there. Really great speaking with you today. Uh, good luck uh, on, on Tuesday and beyond. Please stay in touch as this effort moves forward, Theta. All right. Thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. Okay. We'll take a it, You know, <laughs> if, if I can do nothing else beyond ending slavery before... Oh, I yeah. uh, quit doing this show, then it will have been something, I guess. I know. I laugh at the absurdity that this even, even has to be said and done. I mean, but really, it is a good not question. All, and it's not all that funny, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's not. Can we come together to um, to be against slavery? Gosh, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. We'll see in a few days. All right, quick break, and we are back with some Supreme Court news. Yes, our corrupt packed and stolen Supreme Court is at it again. We'll uh, give you uh, several stories right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Carved above the west portico of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., famously, is the phrase, equal justice under the law. It's carved into stone. And, well, that is true, maybe, as long as you can afford the equal justice requiring, uh, you know, years of expensive legal services in hopes of running out the clock, at least in Donald Trump's case. Donald Trump can afford such unequal treatment, and he has been getting it for years when it comes to the legal requirement to turn over his tax returns to a U.S. House committee seeking to review them. On Tuesday, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts issued a further delay to the House Democratic majority's four-year-long effort to obtain now former President Trump's tax records. Must be nice. In a short ruling, a so-called administrative stay, uh, Roberts temporarily halted the House from accessing the returns, ordering that the House reply to Trump's recent emergency motion to block their, uh, the House's access to his tax records despite a clear, unambiguous federal law that allows the House to do exactly that. 
In this case, the U.S. House of Representatives must reply to Donald Trump's emergency motion by November 10. That is two days after the upcoming midterm elections, conveniently enough. But with the Democrats set to perhaps lose control, lose majority control of the lower chamber of Congress at the beginning of next year, well, every single day at this point counts. That after years of the House Ways and Means Committee trying to access those records that by law they are supposed to be able to access. The Roberts issue delay raises the possibility now that Donald Trump may successfully run out the clock in this matter. Justice Roberts didn't Chief Justice Roberts did not give a reason for the administrative stay, which essentially preserves the status quo in the case where it is. The status quo in this case being Trump's years of delaying any way that he could. The Democrats ran in the 2018 midterms, yes, four years ago, in part on a promise that once they were in control of at least one chamber of Congress, they would use their newly granted powers to obtain Trump's tax returns. Now, I know there's a lot of folks out there on the left saying, oh, Democrats, they're a failure. They never do anything. That is not true, of course. But in cases like this, well, I, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure what uh, folks expect them to do when you have a guy with unlimited funds who is willing to spend them in order to block justice actually being done, to block the actual rule of law, as is the case here with Donald Trump trying to prevent the House from seeing his taxes. Yeah, it's not just defying a lawful subpoena from Congress. It's also, you know, lawmakers have a very clear legislative purpose. There's a reason that the law says what it says in very clear text that says, yeah, you have to do this because they have to find out whether or not the tax laws that are on the books now are effective or not, especially with the wealthy and people in power. Yeah, well, that's darling. <laughs> Under uh, federal law, of course, Congress's tax writing committees are empowered to request the tax records of any filer from the IRS. In the 1970s, for example, Congress did the same with Richard Nixon. And guess what they found? That he paid less in tax because he got favorable treatment from the IRS. The House Ways and Means Committee and its chair, Democrat Richie Neal of Massachusetts, first requested Trump's tax returns way back in April of 2019. That was three months after the Democrats took majority control of that committee in the House. It was part of their investigation into the IRS's audit program and tax law compliance by the former president. A federal law, in fact, says that the Internal Revenue Service, quote, shall furnish the returns of any taxpayer to a handful of top lawmakers. That would include the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. But the Justice Department, then under the control of the uh, Trump administration, well, they refused to turn over the documents in a decision that was uh, made by or at least defended by then Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin to unlawfully withhold the tax returns from Congress because the rule of law means nothing to them. Mnuchin argued that he could withhold the documents at the time because he unilaterally had concluded on his own that those documents were being sought by Democrats for partisan reasons. Therefore, the Treasury Secretary had no responsibility. No, the IRS did not have to turn over those documents to Congress because Steve Mnuchin says so. 
That, of course, is when the House lawsuit was filed in response way back when. The request was then mired in a bunch of legal delays uh, thanks to Trump that have resulted in years of litigation with federal judges upholding requests at first from Trump to block the Biden administration from responding to the request after they came to power in 2020. And then in December of 2021, finally, Trump appointed U.S. District Judge Judge Trevor McFadden ruled that, yes, the IRS did have to disclose the returns to Congress. A Trump appointed judge. Well, that would end that, right? Of course not, silly. Trump then appealed that ruling to a three judge D.C. Circuit Court panel. They ruled against him this past August. So he lost again. Trump then asked for the full appeals court to rehear the case. See what I mean about having enough money to afford so-called equal justice? Could you afford that many court appeals had the federal government demanded your tax documents? Anyway, that appeal to the federal appeals court in D.C. then led to the unanimous rejection by the entire court, Trump-appointed judges and all, of that bid last week. So that would be that, right? Well, no, not if Donald Trump. Donald Trump then asked the Supreme Court to issue another halt in an emergency motion on Monday. And on Tuesday, Chief Justice Roberts did, in fact, put the brakes on it, at least for the next 10 days, though probably longer equal justice under the law. Without court intervention, the tax returns could have been provided as early as Thursday of this week. Remember, the entire Federal Court of Appeals in D.C. said they should be turned over by the Treasury Department to the Democratic-controlled committee as per federal law after four years of trying to execute that clear federal law and being defied by Trump and his various cronies. Now, If Trump can persuade the nation's highest court, which has been packed and stolen and corrupted by at least three of his own appointees to it, if he can persuade them to intervene in this case, he could potentially delay a final decision. Where are we now? It's November, isn't it? Yes, it is. He could delay a final decision until the start of the next Congress at the very beginning of January. And if Republicans do recapture control of the House... In uh, the election on November 8, well, they could and, of course, they would drop the records request entirely. Case closed. The temporary delay imposed by Roberts is the third such order issued by the Supreme Court justices in recent days in various cases related to Trump. The court separately is weighing an emergency appeal from Arizona Republican Party Chairwoman Kelly Ward to prevent the handover of phone records to the bipartisan House committee that is investigating the January 6, 2021 Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. She thinks she doesn't have to answer a, a, a lawful subpoena. She's going. She can afford, apparently, to go all the way to the Supreme Court to make her case. Also last week, corrupt activist right-wing Justice Clarence Thomas placed a separate temporary administrative hold on behalf of Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and his emergency appeal 
to the court, to the high court, to avoid having to testify before a Georgia grand jury that is investigating an unlawful conspiracy by Trump and his allies, including Graham, to push Georgia state officials to reverse the election results in 2020 in uh, Trump's favor in the peach state. And on that, at least, on the Graham case at the high court, well, we have some better news today. The Supreme Court on Tuesday cleared the way for Senator Lindsey Graham's testimony in the Georgia state investigation. That's good news. The court lifted a temporary hold on Graham's appearance before a special grand jury, which is now scheduled for November 17. Barring any further delays, that after months of court hearings in several different states, and of course November 17, also conveniently comes after the uh, midterm elections. Funny but, how uh, that works. Yeah, and lucky him if Graham uh, needs to be able to, uh, uh, you know, he's had a lot of court hearings in several states. If he needs to have more, well, he'll be able to afford that as well, won't he? The In an unsigned order, the justices noted that Graham still, still could come back to them to raise objections to some questions. Quote, today the Supreme Court confirmed that the Constitution's speech or debate clause applies here. Well, what is the speech or debate clause of the Constitution? That says that members of Congress may not be questioned for anything that they do as part of their official duties as members of Congress. And everyone knows that trying to steal elections is an official duty of a member of Congress, right? The court also affirmed that Senator Graham may, in fact, return to the to the district court if the district attorney tries to ask questions about his constitutionally protected activities under the speech and debate clause. So actually, I was wrong there. I said he could go back to the Supreme Court. In fact, he could go back to the district court and then work his way, essentially, uh, presumably all the way back up to the Supreme Court oh, and goody. keep delaying all of this. How fun. Graham had uh, argued that a provision of the Constitution, speech and debate clause, shields him from being forced to testify at all. At least on that note, Graham has lost and lost definitively unless he shows up and the first question out of uh, the special grand jury and, and uh, uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is one that Graham disputes, believes is part of his uh, job as as a senator, and then runs back to the district court. What do you want to bet? The first question, what is your name? He'll say, I'm, that's under that's the speech it. and debate I, clause. I know, exactly. He had uh, uh, Fulton County uh, District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, had uh, told the justices that, quote, the delay resulting from a stay while all of this is sorted out would be unavoidably harmful to the grand jury investigation. That, after all, all of the lower courts had rebuffed every time Graham went to court for a, you know, they, they stopped it. Every time he went for uh, to court for a pause while the legal uh, case plays out, they said, no, you got to testify. Anyway, the Tuesday order dissolves the temporary hold that Justice Clarence Thomas had placed on the testimony while he and his colleagues weighed the arguments Graham's legal team plans to reach out to Fonnie Willis's office reportedly about what happens next. Here's what happens next. You show up and answer questions, Lindsay. You follow the law. You show up for your deposition and you answer questions as required by law. Or, by the way, if you prefer, you can plead the Fifth Amendment to protect yourself. 
The uh, DA had opened her investigation into this matter shortly after the infamous recording from uh, January of 2021 between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was made public, where Trump suggested that Raffensperger should, quote, find the votes needed to overturn his loss in Georgia to uh, to, uh, to Joe Biden. And Fonnie Willis now wants to question Graham about two phone calls that he made to Raffensperger and his staff in the weeks after the election, during which Graham uh, supposedly asked about, quote, re-examining certain absentee ballots cast in Georgia in order to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome for former President Donald Trump. That, according to Fonnie Willis, in her petition seeking to compel his testimony, apparently he wanted to throw out all of the ballots in any of the counties in which there were a high number of uh, ballots that were rejected due to, you know, problems with the envelope, signatures, whatever. Technical problems. Right. He didn't want to throw out those ballots. He was asking the secretary of state, can we throw out all of the ballots in those counties where someone determined that there was uh, more rejected ballots, An signatures, than there should have been. An arbitrary threshold. Gosh, you have, do you have too many? Yep. So uh, anyway, that's where we are now. It looks like Graham is, well, scheduled to uh, appear on November 17. We will see if he actually does. Um, you know, he can also, as I said, return to federal court. If any disputes arise over the questions in front of the grand jury, Uh, according to the justices, which must be nice. Equal justice under law for everybody, right? Just like it says out there on the front of the building. Equal justice if you can afford it anyway. Now, for the record, Justice Thomas did not step aside uh, from this case when it was brought to him. And indeed, he has participated in all of the election, 2020 election-related disputes that were brought to the court by Trump and his allies, even though his activist wife, Ginny Thomas, participated in the effort to steal the 2020 election. And yet Clarence Thomas, despite his wife having a stake in all of these cases, has never recused himself, not once. Ginny Thomas attended the January 6th so-called Stop the Steal rally on the Ellipse. She wrote uh, in numerous text messages to uh, and emails, I believe, to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the weeks after the election, encouraging him to work, to keep going, to try to steal Joe Biden's victory and, and keep Trump in office. She contacted lawmakers personally uh, through email in Arizona and Wisconsin in the weeks after the election, encouraging them to reconvene and choose new Trump electors instead of the Biden electors that were chosen by the voters in each state. Now, last week, when uh, Clarence Thomas first put Graham's testimony on this uh, temporary hold all by himself before Thomas even bothered to consult with the other justices, our friend John Boniface, the longtime constitutional expert and co-founder of the nonpartisan good government group Free Speech for People, he contacted me with a statement about that. He said, quote, Justice Thomas's continued refusal to recuse himself in cases such as the Graham case Involving the 2020 presidential election is grounds for an immediate impeachment inquiry by the House Judiciary Committee. And I would add that such an inquiry for the corrupt Clarence Thomas, given the years long behavior of his corrupt activist wife, well, that is long overdue. 
ain't going to happen, but it's long overdue. Of course, if Democrats fail to retain their majority in the House in, uh, what, about uh, one week's time at this point, this is just one of the reasons why it's so critical that everyone vote this year. Everyone. Yes, even here in so-called liberal California, where a bunch of Republicans, including presumptive House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, are on the ballot this year and could win in a House race that could be incredibly tight as to who wins the majority. If we would like to see any kind of reform of the Supreme Court or Justice Thomas ever being held account accountable for anything, we need everyone to vote this year, period. It all comes back to that. It really does. And Republicans, meanwhile, if they take the majority, they have already vowed to tank the economy by refusing to uh, raise the debt limit and holding Social Security and Medicare hostage. They vowed to impose to hold impeachment hearings themselves for President Biden. For what? I have no idea. Impeachment hearings for Dr. Anthony Fauci. For what? I have no idea. And for other members of Biden's cabinets. Now, they're not going to have enough, enough votes to remove anybody in the Senate. So this is all theater. But that's what Republicans are planning to do. To, that's how they're going to spend the next two years, blocking any and all of the Biden administration's agenda who had been working for the people, who had been working for, you know, unions, health care, abortion rights and so forth to not, save the climate. Not just the agenda of the Biden administration on all of these important issues, but also blocking Biden's judicial nominees. If a Supreme Court vacancy comes up, McConnell has said he's not going to let that come up for a vote. He's going to pull that same stunt again. Yep. Anyway, if you have any doubt about all of this and the importance of these elections, again, I, I recommended it last week. I'll do it again. Uh, Ernie Canning's uh, recent piece at Bradblog.com headlined To Save American Democracy, a longtime Bernie Sanders supporter on why we must vote blue in 22. Other than that, from the Supreme Court today, equal justice indeed. All right. Speaking of saving the climate. Desi Doyen, she's up next with our latest Green News report. After a quick break, I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Hey, Desi Doyen. Yes. Uh, remember at the top of the show, I promised them there would be good news in your GNR coming up later? Yes. No pressure. <laughs> you better not disappoint in our latest Green News Report. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has defeated Brazil's far-right President Jair Bolsonaro, capping a remarkable political comeback. Major turning point for climate in Brazil's presidential election. The drop in Russian gas exports after its invasion of Ukraine will transform the global energy landscape. Russia's war in Ukraine has accelerated the energy transition. New report finds, plus... Let's turn to climate. And that was it for climate questions in U.S. Senate debates. Guess it's not all that important. 
All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. How would you hold Russia and other polluting com- countries accountable? Well, I would I would demand the same kind of uh, the same kind of international uh, agreements that they that that is uh, that we have we are bound by. Oh, you mean like the Paris Agreement that we're bound by, that Russia's bound by, that China's bound by, and that your president Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of Don Bullock, Republican Senate candidate from New Hampshire. Got it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, very big international news, very good international news, I think, from down in Brazil. Yeah, for once. Big news in Brazil. The former president, known to the people simply as Lula, narrowly won Brazil's presidential election runoff on Sunday, defeating far-right President Jair Bolsonaro in an election with global climate implications that will reverberate worldwide. In his single term as president, Bolsonaro accelerated deforestation of the Amazon rainforest to the highest levels in 15 years, harming a critical global carbon sink that absorbs a significant chunk of humanity's carbon emissions. Lula has vowed to cut Amazon deforestation to zero and set new emissions targets for Brazil, a monumental shift, according to Brown University historian James Green on CNBC. I can't emphasize how much things will be different in this country with Lula's election. It means a return to policies to save the Amazon. It means developing government programs to eliminate hunger again. And not a moment too soon. Russia has unleashed a barrage of missile strikes against Ukraine's civilian energy infrastructure in major cities, knocking out electricity and water systems, a potential war crime. Eighty percent of residents in Kiev are without water, according to officials. But an unexpected turn in the war after Russia engaged in energy blackmail, cutting off natural gas exports to Europe to erode Europe's support for Ukraine. European officials say that storage for natural gas going into winter is now nearly full, helped in part by conservation and near record warm autumn temperatures. Global warming saves us again. Here in the U.S., the 2020 midterm elections are just days away, an inflection point in American democracy that will also determine the future of U.S. climate policy. Voters have a stark choice between Democratic climate hawks or Republican climate science deniers and delayers for control of Congress, governorships, and state legislatures. But it's hard for them to know what to do if they don't know the candidates' positions. A Media Matters analysis of Senate debates found moderators ask zero questions about man-made climate change in key Senate races in Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Well, there are states that are not that affected by climate change. Right. Only debate moderators in New Hampshire asked the candidates about climate. Good. Meanwhile, on Monday, oil companies record profits today are not because they're doing something new or innovative. 
The profits are a windfall of war. President Biden went on the offensive on Monday against major oil companies, calling their record profits the result of war profiteering from energy instability caused by Russia's war on Ukraine. He is correct. Exxon, Chevron and Shell pulled in record or near record profits in the third quarter. Biden again called for Congress to enact a windfall profits tax on the oil industry for price gouging consumers while global oil prices have fallen. Oil majors are buying back shares and paying out billions to their shareholders instead of investing in new production. While they are screwing you over at the pump. Finally, some good news. The newly released annual World Energy Outlook report from the International Energy Agency concludes that Russia's war on Ukraine is likely to accelerate the global energy transition away from fossil fuels, quote, not just for the time being, but for decades to come. While some countries have temporarily increased burning of fossil fuels to address short-term energy shortages, the IEA projects for the first time ever that on current trends, demand for coal will peak in just a few years, natural gas usage will peak by the end of the decade, and oil demand will peak around the mid-2030s. That's because homegrown clean technology like wind, solar, and batteries are cheaper and more stable, and the fuel is free. I really don't think Vladimir Putin thought this one through. At least I'm glad Brazilian voters did. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. See? There's some good news for you. There is. A little bit. We'll take it. Always leave them uh, whistling on their way out of the theater. Thank you very (laughs) much, our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to my guest today, Theda Murphy of No Exceptions Prison Collective. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com. Even if you just want to listen to it again or share it with friends and your family or your enemies, either one. Take your pick. (laughs) All of that is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 